we sang a song earlier tonight about the steadfast love of God and there was a line in it that I thought was quite significant that especially with the backdrop of a Vegas massacre and 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 while that feels uh uncomfortably familiar uh it it still has a way of being very unsettling but the line that we sang that I thought was so significant was that uh even in um in in the absence uh of in the absence of justice you you are still God is still holy I uh, had lunch this week and um, I was asked by a friend again reflecting on some of his conversations that he's having around the office and he says David what did you what would you say to someone who uh, would say why would God allow such terrible things to happen and I would say and what I told him was I said I would say that the world we're living in however familiar and however normal it is to us, is not the world that God intended. It's the world that God created, and he said it was good, except something called sin interrupted it all, and ever since then, God has been on a mission, and the mission is to restore and repair the world in which he actually intended us to be in. See, what you and I know as normal, what you and I experience is not actually what God intended. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, God has been trying to restore and repair the world. And so what I want us to be able to understand, and we've started a series through the book of Nehemiah, and tonight we're in Nehemiah chapter 2. I'm going to encourage you, if you want to pull it up on your phone, uh, or if you brought your Bible, or maybe there's one in the seat rack, Nehemiah uh, is, a, is a fascinating look because if you want to understand the vision or the mission of God, God has one plan in this world and that is the restoration of all things. And what we have as an invitation, what we have as a responsibility, if we call ourselves a follower of Christ, regardless of our day job, we have the beginnings of a calling and a mission from God. That is to participate in restoring the world as God intended. And so uh, I want to go through uh, this, this chapter tonight. And what we see through the entire book of Nehemiah is a snapshot of the vision that God has for restoration. Um, and so real quick, I want to talk about particularly in this chapter, um, that when we talk about restoration, not just then and there, but here and now, not just a collective body, but a personal invitation. That is, when we talk about restoration, we're talking about a need for both walls and gates. And I'll explain what I mean for that. We need both walls and gates. But I also think that when we talk about restoration, um, we're talking about it means using our influence, however big or however small. But it also means that we need to be able to assess our own need as well. So when we look at the world and we think, how could God allow that to happen? Or why doesn't someone do something? Part of the feelings of injustice, part of the, of the, the, the kind of righteous anger that all of us feel at times is, I think, God's invitation for us to participate with his restoration. 
So um, in the book of Nehemiah, let me just give you a little bit of backdrop so we see. There is this important picture that we have of God who, again, since Genesis 3, has been trying to restore and repair things. But there's a need for walls and gates, and the, neither the walls or the gates are surrounding Jerusalem. They've been in rubble for about a hundred years. Uh, there's been people that have been moved back there for 25 years, and they've just accepted the rubble as part of their normal. No one's really taken the initiative. Ezra moved back and he rebuilt the temple, but the walls are still crumbled. The gates have been burned. And so what we have is someone coming to Nehemiah saying, the city the city of our people lies in ruins. And so I think that uh, what we see here is this picture of vulnerability. There's a picture of a group of people who struggle to know who they are. There's a picture of people who don't have a, a physical perimeter to, to count as a boundary, to count as a protection. And so what we have in our own lives is if something doesn't define our lives, if something doesn't surround our lives, if something doesn't hedge us in, what we live with is a kind of state of vulnerability. And when we live vulnerably, we become open to all sorts of ethics and philosophies and all sorts of beliefs. And so we live in a very vulnerable state. And so what, I, what we have is a word for that, and it's called exile. And every culture needs both walls and gates. Now, I'm speaking both figuratively and very literally. And what we have through the book of Nehemiah is a literal construction. But what we have for each of us is a figuring out of who we are as the people, as a child of God. Now, the calling of Israel was always to be a peculiar people, a distinctive people. And so the Hebrew has a word uh, that, that we get the word holiness, and it was always supposed to be in reference to a distinct people. And so God's plan from the beginning was that the character of the people of God would be a saltiness, both a preservative and a kind of flavor. That if salt loses its saltiness, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. And so what we have is that we have this calling to be the flavor of the kingdom of God, this sort of preservative for the values and the vision of God in, 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 in his creation. And so the wall, I think, represents in, in a very physical way, but in a very figurative way, the kind of identity that we're supposed to have. It's a shared common value for the people of God. And so what God had originally said to Abraham, he said, I will bless you and you will bless the nations. And part of how God was to bless Abraham was that he was saying, live within my commands, live within this kind of value system. And if you live according to my commands, I will make you such a distinct people, it'll be like a light set on a hill. The problem is, is that the people of God didn't actually live as anything that remarkable, both now 
and then. And so God's original intention was that there would be a people that were defined by their worship. And it would be a people defined by justice and mercy and generosity and hospitality. It would be a people that were set apart by this holiness, a peculiar people. That it would be such a reflection of who God is that the world would see. Maybe one of the best examples of this is when, if you've ever read about the Queen of Sheba. Queen of Sheba came from a long way away under Solomon's reign. And when she had heard all that had happened, she, her testimony was, and, and she said in, in 2 Kings chapter 10, I had heard all about Israel and I didn't believe it, but now I've come and it's beyond what I imagined. And she then says, blessed be Jehovah. Bingo! That's how it's supposed to work. It wasn't just that the city was built up in all its, its glory. It's that the people were being set apart. That it became a testimony of who God is, right? But if you read in Ezekiel chapter 5, there's a couple of verses that the vision that God's people, uh, that the church would be like a city set on a hill, but they'd become worse than the world's culture. Listen to what it says. This is what the sovereign Lord said. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations, with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and the countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has, has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, you have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nation around you. The people who were supposed to be set apart had taken on slaves. They had become abusers even though they had once been abused. They had taken on child sacrifice. They had taken on fertility worship and, and multiple wives. This was never God's intent. And he's like, oh my goodness, you have become worse than the nations around you when in fact you were supposed to be set apart. So when in 586 the walls fall in Jerusalem, it was only perfunctory. And what I mean by that is the walls of distinctiveness had already fallen, that it was sort of just an afterthought. There was nothing separating, there was nothing dividing, there was nothing that would set them apart as a, as a, as a royal priesthood that would be a witness to the nations. And then for a hundred years, it sits in rubble. 25 years later, uh, under the king of Persia, Cyrus, people are allowed to move in. But they moved back in and just kind of went, well, I guess this is the way it is. Someone's going to rebuild this, I guess, eventually. But for 25 years, living in rubble. And so I would say this, we need lives that are distinct. In other words, we need walls. Now, before you write me off, let me explain what I mean. People who love walls... Um, are often highly legalistic. And so we need to be careful about when we root for walls. But I think every healthy culture, every healthy church has that which defines its distinctiveness. Um, but there, there's something that comes out of it. If we're not careful, it becomes pride-based. If we're not careful, it becomes fear-based. And so religion 
at its worst is walls without gates. And the calling of Nehemiah is that he would rebuild the walls and the gates. Do you understand what I'm saying here? There are things that set ourselves apart and there is a need for walls. We live in a world that, and in a culture where, where we don't want to be offensive and every day we wake up to someone else being offended. There's someone else that doesn't want to kind of be named this way or singled out this way. And so lots of accommodations get made. And one of the worst things today that you could be guilty of is somehow being intolerant or somehow um, being somehow biased in any particular way. And what I'm simply saying is there are things that need to define God's people without apology. We don't have to make apology for what the word of God has said because God's intent and I want to be careful how we define what our God's commands because God intended the commands to help us live in harmony with him, harmony with each other, and harmony with our creation. We need walls, but we also need gates. And if a church has no gates, the primary purpose is, is keeping those people out. And it just largely sends a message of what we're against. So again, if you have walls without gates, you've lost your calling. But if you have gates without walls, you've missed your calling. Restoration, then and now. Restoration, this calling to restore and repair a broken world, starting with my life, is not about building a wall, it's about building walls with gates. Now, if you flip to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, God begins to paint a picture. And the picture is what it will all look like on Jesus' return. And the, and the language that they use is a new city coming out of heaven, this new Jerusalem, this, this restoration of all things. And look at how it describes it. The city does not need sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no, uh, on no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. We have a picture where there will be no darkness because Christ has returned and it shines all the time. And while there's gates that are still on hinges, they never need to close because what he's saying is there needs to be room for anyone and everyone at the table. That whatever happens within the walls, it needs to maintain a kind of an accessibility because there has to be room at the table. Because to, to get in there, to experience the world as God intended, which we like to call heaven on earth, to experience any kind of heaven then or there, it's not by our own merits. And so you cannot have walls without gates. But this, the opposite is equally true. If you are all about gates without walls, then what is it that you actually believe? What is it that you actually stand for? You cannot confront intolerance with intolerance. It doesn't work. 
it's okay to stand for something without it meaning to offend someone. And what I mean by this is, I think there's a myth of intolerance. You can't get by it. In my home, my dad was largely intolerant. And what I mean is this, I remember being a five-year-old kid. We had kind of a culture of our home. Every night we sat down for dinner. And every night, if the phone happened to ring and it was plugged into the wall, there was no cell phones back in the day, he would answer it and, and just simply say, he'll call you back. And we were going to have family dinner and it was a time to, there was no TV in that room. It was, it was a very focused family meal, kind of old fashioned that way. But I remember, you know, we, we would take our plates away, put them in the sink, and then we would say, you know, they're, they're teaching us all the manners, and uh, you're supposed to say thanks. And I remember, I was like six years old, um, I didn't, like, I was used to playing with my friends, so I went up and I was going to um, whisper a thank you to my mom, and I burped in her ear. And I thought this was the funniest thing. But I had enough wherewithal that I just started running, laughing my head off, like that was, and I didn't get three steps up a flight of stairs before my dad, I feel this, and I feel this, don't you ever, all of a sudden, we had a word for intolerance, it was called a boundary. Don't you ever burp in your mom's face again. Oh, so mom's different than friends, right? right? Like, all of a sudden you learn, oh, I can't cross that line. Oh, that does us no good. Oh, there's a boundary there. I always say about parenting, you know, the hardest part about raising kids is just being consistent, right? Because kids, let me say that differently, people are always trying to push the boundaries. You're always trying to see where the boundary is. Many of you have learned the boundaries of driving and what is an acceptable miles per hour over the speed limit before it's considered illegal, right? Because there's like this gray window of I can speed this much, but if he's got a radar gun, then I'm, it, I'm, it's messed up. What I'm simply saying is you need walls and gates. You can't have one without the other. And what God was trying to do was establish a people that would be so set apart by what would help us live in the least destructive way. And he wanted us to live in such a way that would be a witness, a testimony, like a, like, like a light, a beacon set on a hill that would draw the world unto him. So what we have in, in Nehemiah chapter 2 is uh, this picture um, of using the influence. And what you have is Nehemiah kind of getting up enough gusto to go to the king. And here's what we need to understand about Nehemiah, is that Nehemiah doesn't have a lot of power. He has moderate level of authority. He has tons of trust of the king because he's the cupbearer. He's the one that's going to sample, and the, the king is entrusting him with his life so that no one poisons him. And so you have this unique role with, let's put it this way, lots of influence, but not necessarily lots of authority. He has this privileged place and gets to live with all the amenities of royalty, living in the, the winter palace in Susa, 
And with some kind of fear, fear and trepidation, he goes and makes the ask. Sociologists would tell us that even the most introverted of people will influence in their lifetime over 10,000 people. Now, I'm not the most gregarious person, but I'm not the most introverted person. So if that kind of holds mildly true, think about that. How is it that we steward our influence? When we talk about restoration, we're talking about first the need for both walls and gates, that there needs to be something that defines us, but there's also something that makes it accessible, right? The second thing I would simply say out of this passage is that we need to be a people who recognize our God-given influence. And when God gives us a place, whether it be with people or with resources, that we're able to leverage it for his good. Let me show you what I mean by this. If you uh, turn with me into uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, it says, In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth month of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Let me just explain. There's probably been about a four-month window. We don't know exactly why. It could have been he's at the Winter Palace and the king was somewhere else. Or it could have been that he prayed and fasted for four months. But there's still this period where he was trying to, by the time he got news to the time that he made this sort of, he's about to make this request, there was about a four-month period. And the king looks at him, and I don't want you to mistake the king's sort of emotional intelligence. The king is not a caring soul. The king is all about the king and it's sort of one of these things that if the king's happy in the court everyone's happy and so what he's saying is hey are you not feeling he's not saying are you feeling okay do, do you need a day off the king's paranoid that someone might be poisoning his food his cupbearer is supposed to sip the wine and if the cupbearer is somehow sipping the wine and starts to feel nauseous or starts to feel sick that's a good sign because that was intended for the king so bad for you, but good for me. But the king says, this is only sadness of heart. If you had a bellyache, you could be justified looking so pathetic. That's what he's saying. And so he adds, then he goes on to say, uh, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers were buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it that you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven. And he began to make his request. But what we see out of, out of this is that I would just like to highlight, because there are moments when we are privileged to be able to use our God-given influence to advocate on behalf of someone else or, 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 or to care for someone else. Whatever resources we have uh, to be able to leverage for someone else. And sometimes it requires an act of courage. And we like to think that either you're courageous or you're afraid. But can I just simply say, based on what I'm reading here, that fear and courage are always present at the same time. It's, it's what we choose to do to act courageously. We can't wait for the fear to go away. Like, oh my God, I feel like I'm supposed to write this check, but I wonder if I'm going to have enough at the end of the month. If God is calling you by faith to write the check, oh my gosh, I feel like there's an opportunity to come alongside this family, but I don't know if I can actually be of help. 
don't think of courage and fear as mutually exclusive. Think of them as part of the same equation. And when we walk in obedience, fear will always be a part of it, but that's where our faith begins to rise up. It's where we end up in a Syrian home having a foreign meal when you're like, how on God's green earth did I end up here? I never, I just was being nice. And now this guy's got an invitation. It takes a little bit of courage to walk into it. And you, am I going to make cultural faux pas? Are we going to just, you know, disagree on our religion? Or do you let God prepare someone's heart by how they bless you? Fascinating to see that even with fear, he approaches the king and that becomes the testimony of his courage. If you want to talk about this, read Elizabeth Elliot's story. Elizabeth Elliot was a missionary of which her husband was killed. And she has this two-year-old son and with great fear returns to the people who killed her, her, her husband. Courage, right? Fear was not separate. If you want to learn, read Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was calling out the Nazi regime for really bad theology. And he left the country only to return. And people said, you can't go back. Churches had caved and the, and the Reich had risen. And he's like, this, this is crazy. This is lunacy. This is not the gospel. But he returns. And it was only just days before the war ended that he ended up being hung with a piano wire and people had said if you go back you will die and he goes how will they know courage and fear always go together but courage means we might be afraid to take a next step but we take it anyway and so what he does nehemiah he identifies with the jewish people why is that such a scary thing? Because the Jews have been sort of this scrawny runt of the litter for ages. They've always been sort of a rebellious people. They've always been trying to kind of rise up. This, you know, it started when you had, you know, this sort of deliverance out of Egypt. You, you had these people coming out of Egypt and then they were trying to be this new set apart. But ever since, God's been trying to raise up these people and there's always been these rebellions. And so Artaxerxes knows the history and the reputation. And he basically says, these are my people and I want to rebuild the homeland. And um, I know you know full well that there's a little bit of a reputation of these people, but despite that, I wonder if you would send me. And he makes a very improbable ask. And this is what he says. Then I prayed to, uh, to God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in its sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king said with the queen sitting beside her asked, how long will the journey take and when will you be back? And if it please, it please the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, and then he's like, uh, if some of you play hearts, this is what you call shooting the moon. Um, if you play baseball, you're swinging for the fences. If you play football, it's a Hail Mary pass. He just goes for broke here. And he goes, all right, here goes. Uh, if it pleases the king, I've, uh, he says, I have sent letters so that it will provide, oh, wait, wait, sorry, I lost my place right there. Um, um, Oh, okay, so trans-Euphrates, so they will provide me safe uh, conduct uh, 
until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and the city wall and for the residence that I will occupy. What? Wait. Okay, so um, I know you trust me with your life like every single day, but could I have like a lot of time off? Um, could you ensure my safe passage? Would there be some kind of way that you could write some letters? Could you send me with some resources? And could I kind of have a blank check to go to your forest and get the needed timber? Please? I mean, I, I mean, it's like the biggest ask of all time from someone who could care less about Israel's success or a city that he could care less about. He makes the ask of a pagan king who has no interest. Uh, and that's what's interesting about this. If Nehemiah can ask a pagan king to fund the vision, then I'm willing to ask for your support to fund the vision that is Mission Hills Church. If he can ask a pagan king to be able to do this on behalf of then I believe all of us have this vested interest, this stake in the game for God bringing the prosperity to this city. And the kind of things that we're doing might seem menial. We don't have a lot of horsepower, but we do have a calling. We could do church as it's always been done, or we can create a laboratory for us to go experiment in. We can go and, and have Sunday school, except on Friday nights, doing supper club, or visiting refugees, or maybe helping out with foster care. There's a way for us to reinvent doing church. And then let me just say it, it feels a little uncomfortable. It feels a little unpredictable. But what I'm saying is, there's a way for us to be able to be formed into the image of God and respond to the calling that I believe is on this church. We have a stake in the prosperity of our city, the faith of our children, the salvation of our friends, the needs of the vulnerable. Christ followers are called to participate in the restoration of God whether that means giving, serving, leading, or including others in the work. And so listen to what he says right here in verse 8, when he, when he just finishes up uh, by saying, uh, and because of the gracious hand of my God uh, was, was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, and they gave them the king's letters, and the king had also sent me with army officers and Calvary. There is this picture that he got way more than he even asked for. And so he, he recognizes God's hand. And so when we talk about restoration, we talk about, okay, what does it mean to be distinct? And for us, we've defined ourselves by these shared rhythms. We've defined these rhythms as generosity and hospitality and compassion and community and gratitude and apprenticing and renewal because we believe those reflect the heart of God. But we also believe that if we practice those, it'll form Christ in me. It helps my faith be for the benefit of others, but it helps me know how to give my faith to another. Walls. 
And yet, we're trying to be very intentional with the gates. Why is it that we would give up meeting together in a worship service to go meet at Fourth Tap Brewery and have really good barbecue and play trivia and not even take an offering? Gates. We need gates. We need walls. There has to be something that defines the people of faith, but it has to be open to anyone and everyone because there has to be room at the table. And oh, by the way, you are the invitation. You get to be a part of the hospitality where we realize who God has prepared in advance. And so we need walls and gates. We need to understand our influence and, and be willing to leverage that even if it means being mildly afraid. God has called us, be of good cheer, take courage, those are the words again and again through scripture. The last thing that I'll just say as we wrap up is simply saying this. The last thing he does is when he gets there, and I don't have time to go through the rest of this chapter, but he, he begins to ride around the city and he assesses the need. See, there is such an important need in our own life for honest evaluation. There is a need in our life to be really ruthlessly honest and, and I have to tell you, I think a lot of times we're, we're more in love with the perception of ourselves. Let me, let me read you a, a funny um, kind of illustration of uh, the, the way I think we are, have a tendency uh, to sort of um, fall in love with the perception of ourselves. Um, this is evidence for an overinflated opinion of ourselves that co comes from the College Board of Administrators uh, and the SAT exam. Uh, which millions of high school students take each year. And on the test, there are a number of uh, other questions besides the ones about math and English, which the students are asked to answer. For instance, they're asked to evaluate their leadership ability. And in a recent, recently in an exam, it says this, 70% of the students rated themselves above average in leadership and only 2% below average. 60% rated themselves as above average in athletics, while only 6% said below average. And when they rated themselves as to how easy they were to get along with, 25% said that they were in the top 1%. 60% said that they were in the top 10. And absolutely no one said that they were below average in being easy to get along with. We love a perception of ourselves. I think it's how we protect ourselves. But what we see from Nehemiah, both literally and figuratively, is that he begins to walk the city walls. And it's in rubble. Keeping in mind that some of the Israelites had already resettled 25 years ago and they're living in ruins. And he comes along and at one point it even says that he couldn't ride. He's riding like a donkey or a mule. He couldn't even ride because there was such rough, rocky terrain. He's like, this is nonsense. You are living as a vulnerable people. You are living in exile and God has invited you to come out of exile and to live as a, as a light on a hill. And he's like, how has this become your normal? And I wonder how we back into life where our addictions become our normal. I wonder how our, our sort of overconsumption has become our normal. 
how um, our lack of margins have become our normal, how our temper has become our normal. These things weren't supposed to be part of God's design. He gave you anger, but not to blow a fuse. He gave you anger to respond in justice. What we know as normal is a broken version of it. And so we need some honest self-assessment. And just like he does this tour through him, and he looks at all the people, sometimes we need someone speaking into our life about the condition and the rubble in our lives. Like, I don't think this was God's intention. I don't think it was God's intention for you to be so governed with fear that you never leave home. So cautious that it keeps you from taking a risk to bless another. There is this assessment that he goes through and just looking and, and surveying the land. And I wonder how much of our own heart. And I would just simply close with where we closed our last series on the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the fallen ones who are able to recognize their inadequacies and shortcomings and be able to examine their own hearts. Maybe we need to just close and simply pray in a prayer like David prayed, search my heart, O God, and see if there is any impure or unclean way in me. What is the normal that I had come to assume that you never intended? If you came for harmony and are trying to restore and repair this world, my life, how do I need to walk into that restoration? How do we as a church need to walk into God's restoration in Austin? The beauty of the book of Nehemiah, it is this wonderful snapshot of what God has been doing ever since Genesis 3 and till the end of times about trying to repair and restore that which was broken. So with that in mind, can we just pray a prayer of just some examination tonight? We're going to close with a couple of worship songs, but i just like to pray with you. Our Father in heaven, I just give you just these moments as we reflect back on you and, and ask that you would just speak to our hearts about the condition that we're living and, and maybe would you just reveal what is rubble that we think are really helpful stepping stones. I pray that you would restore and repair the joy of our salvation. I pray that you would reveal the things that would interrupt our intimacy with you. I pray that you would speak to us about the hard places of our lives that feel maybe are more of a tombstone than a stepping stone. I pray that you would give us a vision for your restoration. Give us an idea about how you see us and how we can leverage what we do have for your glory, for your kingdom. I pray that we would be participants, fully aligned with your plans and purposes. I pray that you would help build the walls in this community that make us distinct and set apart. I pray that holiness would be the testimony, but our gates would be so pronounced and so attractive. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work in us as well as through us. I pray that in these moments, your Holy Spirit would just be active. Give us a prompt, give us a word, give us a face. Lord, what we need to confess 
we need to name. Pray that you would make us aware of how you have been at work in the sequence of our lives, leading us to this time, to this place. But thank you for what you are doing. Thank you that you are a gracious God that welcomes us unto yourself. We worship you now and respond. Thank you.